We are waiting for Bill to come do the announcements. We don't have a hymn this morning. Good morning. Sorry, we're running a little bit late and uh, a little bit different uh, in our service today. Uh, no music before the announcements. Um, and the announcements, there's no bulletin, but uh, I think that uh, if you have last week's bulletin, pretty much the announcements are the same. And there will be communion uh, after the service today. Um, passage that... Uh, we're going to read today is from Jude uh, 5, 1 through 5. <clears throat> everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of, of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. May God add a blessing in the reading of his word. And welcome to everyone. Um, as you know, our pastor uh, is down in San Antonio, uh, going to be returning, I think, today or tomorrow. Uh, so keep him in prayer. I also ask you to keep Steve Myers uh, in prayer as well as he prepares for uh, looking at uh, other treatments uh, for the cancer that has uh, attacked his body, and, uh, and keep him and uh, Janice in prayer. And uh, we do, again, uh, just thank you for those prayers. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for this day. It's a wonderful day that you've made. And Father, we uh, think of those that are traveling and uh, we just pray for your mercies on those. And we think of those that are in need, uh, whether it be medical, uh, financial, uh, whatever. We just pray, Father, that... Uh, you would make those needs known to uh, those around us. And again, Father, we think of Steve and, and Janice, and we pray for Steve's. Um, we just pray for a prolonged life for him. And again, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the message you placed on Jacob's heart today and uh, in the service that he's going to be offering to us. And Father, we again thank you and praise you. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, Apostle Robert, to please stand with us and worship. 
hopefully you may be seated. But I'm nervous for my job. These guys are going to take my job from me. <laughs> it's all God, it's all God, but they do a fantastic job leading worship. This is our youth band, by the way. With the exception of Thaddeus over there, he's an older guy. But uh, thank you guys for doing that, and uh, thank Larson for uh, leading them in that direction. Uh, Pastor Josh is out today. I pray that he makes it back uh, safely along with his wife, back from San Antonio. Um, and kids, you are not dismissed. You're stuck with me this morning, so sorry about that. <laughs> we have communion today. Um, but I want you to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. <clears throat> and while you do that, I'm, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, we are thankful for this awesome time of worship. Uh, Lord, we don't take that opportunity for granted. and We appreciate the leading. And we ask that you bless our time together as we open scripture and uh, learn more about you, that we may be encouraged to live a better Christian life and to love you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So John chapter 4. I've spoken on this passage a number of times in the past in in, in different languages, too. It's one of my favorite passages in in scripture. Uh, I don't have one particular favorite passage, but I like ch- chapter 4 in the Gospel of John, all right? My, my dad would teach me uh, sections of this chapter when I was a kid, and uh, back then I really didn't understand what it was about. I, all I knew as a kid, as a 10-year-old, was that there was a lady and she gave some water to Jesus because he was thirsty, and that's all I knew. But as you grow in your, in your walk with Jesus Christ, you may have experienced this in, in, in your life. Uh, maybe you have a favorite passage if you're that kind of person that has one favorite passage. And as years pass, you read that passage and it means something different, right? There's a different application to it. Uh, one truth, of course. There's always one intended truth, perhaps a, a bifold truth in Scripture. Um, but oftentimes there's different applications as we <clears throat> grow in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 4, we have, man, this is hot. Can I get a little less of this? Thanks. In John chapter 4, we have uh, Jesus departing from Judea. If you remember in John chapter 3, he has a, now it's too low. (laughs) Sorry, Lars. In chapter 3, he's talking to a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And he tells him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again, right? And he has this conversation. We have John 3.16. He loved the world. He gave his only son. And after that, verse 3 in chapter 4 tells us that he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So here we have three different places mentioned in these verses. And all three places were distinct from one another. The first one mentioned is Judea. And Judea was where Jerusalem was, of course, the temple. If you were lucky, you would be a Jew born in Judea. You would be a Judean. The second place that is mentioned, the place that Jesus is going to. So Judea is in the south, and Jesus is going to the north up to Galilee. 
Now, Galilee was on the wrong side of the tracks. It was the ghetto. It was known for its political unrest, for uh, banditry, various tax revolts. And Jesus happened to be from Galilee, from a town, a place by the name of Nazareth, hence Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Jesus was, throughout the Gospels, he was treated with contempt for being a Galilean. Yet many, interestingly, many of his parables and many more <coughs> of his miracles were done in this region in, in, in Galilee. And the differences were, were noticeable if between Judeans and, and Galileans as a Texan would be in New York. While you're thinking to yourself, man, I fit right in New York if I go. Well, just think of this. And I can talk about Pastor Josh because he's not here. <laughs> Picture Pastor Josh in the middle of New York, New York. <laughs> That's the difference that Judeans and Galileans had. Everything was different. Their accent was noticeably different than those in Judea, perhaps they dressed a little different. And, and being that far from Jerusalem meant that they were probably laxer in their practice of the law. And the third place that Jesus mentions, or that John mentions here, in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now this place is interesting. Samaria, that is. It was a place that both Judeans from the south and Galileans from the north avoided. Samaria was kind of lodged in between the two, right in the middle. And they kind of avoided that place at all costs. They didn't like each other. The Samaritans were the result of years and years of interbreeding between Jews and pagans. We're going to see a passage here in a bit uh, on that. <clears throat> but the religion was syncretistic, and it was caused by this interbreeding of Jews with, with the pagan nations, pagan people. And if you were a Jew from Samaria, the question is, are you really a Jew? Not quite. Now, some people going from Judea south to Galilee in the north, and vice versa, they would go around uh, the region through the desert to avoid passing through Samaria, although Samaria or passing through Samaria was the most direct route to the north and vice versa. And again, due to their mix with other nations, they, they ended up with a polluted religion, and, and hence their worship was syncretistic. And syncretism basically is defined as the combination of different forms of belief or practice, right? There is a religion in Latin America <clears throat> that grows out of, out of the slave trade in Cuba, uh, and it's called Santeria. Uh, really satanic, honestly, in, in, in their practices, uh, but this is an example of religious syncretism where they incorporate different elements from other beliefs, Catholicism included, in, in fact. And, and they're for, they, form, they're, they form their own way of, of worshiping. In, in the book of Second Kings, we see that the northern tribes of Israel uh, were exiled for, from their own land for sinning against God. That was kind of their punishment. And, and, and we see that later the Assyrian king populated that land where the Jews used to be, they, he populated that land with pagans who were later known as the Samaritans. And these pagans, again, married with Jews and vice versa, and they ended up with a flawed system of syncretistic worship. They erroneously believed that their system of worship was every bit as legitimate as that of the Jews. So they had their pagan gods on the one end, 
and they worship Yahweh on the other. So we worship the gods, but we will also worship Yahweh. But yet, verse 4 tells us, John tells us that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And we see him doing this all too often. He, he visits places where the outcasts live. In at least two occasions, we see him entering the house of a couple of tax collectors. Well, what's the big deal, right? The big deal is that tax collectors were the scum of the Jews back in Jesus' day. He enters the house of Zacchaeus. He enters, a, he enters a, and has a party or a banquet with, with Matthew. He has a conversation later on in the book of John with an adulterous woman who was caught in the very act. Imagine that. She was caught in the very act, and then they place her in front of Jesus. We see him caring multiple times, numerous times, for the sick, for the lepers, all the outcasts of, of that day. And he needed to go through Samaria. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us why. He needed to go through there, but speculation is permitted, I think. My theory is that not only Jesus was tired uh, from the journey, but there was someone there that needed Jesus so desperately, and he needed to go through Samaria. So he comes to a city, verse 5, of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being Tired from his journey, he sits by the well. And John tells us it was about the sixth hour. It was about 12 p.m., almost time for Luby's, right? If you go to Luby's after church. It was about the, the, the sixth hour. It was about 12 p.m. Now, this town by the name of Syker, it wasn't the Houston of Texas. It was more like Brundage, Texas. Raise your hand if you know what Brundage, Texas is. You don't. Well, he does. You get a candy bar if you were in youth group, but you're not in youth group. That's the way I get youth, youth to raise their hands. I ask them questions. They're all like, dude, I don't want to participate. And then I say, I have candy bars. <laughs> Even if they say something funny like your mom or whatever they say to me. <laughs> you don't know Brundage because there's about 20 people living there. And that's the case with Sycar. Sycar. Now, Jacob's well was there and it was a spot known to the people around the area, as it was to travelers. And, and, and I think it's significant that John is mentioning these little random details, right? He, was, he enters Sychar. There's a plot of ground that Jacob gives to his son Joseph. There was a well there. Um, I, I think it's, it's significant because it, 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 it's going to give some validity to the story and how it eventually unfolds. Now, understand this, church, that Jesus is about to break an unwritten code of ethics as it relates to the people of Samaria and to women. He is also about to talk to this lady that has a sketchy past, to say the least. And I think uh, people could have easily dismissed any claims that he actually spoke to a Samaritan woman, considering what she does after her chat with Jesus, which is nothing less of extraordinary. So knowing where it happened, knowing uh, what town, what, what spot in Samaria, uh, knowing this would allow others to reference that place and, and the people that would frequent that place and ask if it was a legitimate story. So about 12 p.m., and Jesus is traveling, and he's tired. He shows his humanity here, right? He was 100% God, and 
he was also 100% human. And right about 12 or so, a woman of Samaria comes to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, John tells us. So he is tired, and according, uh, apparently his disciples are gone. They're buying supplies. They're buying food. And normally they would have been the ones to provide water to their rabbi, their rabbi, their teacher. And again, it's, it's about 12 p.m. when this woman comes rolling in, which is interesting, too, because it is believed that women would frequent this well and other wells early in the morning or later in the evening to avoid the scorching sun. We could relate to this, right? Living in El Paso, especially in the summer. We don't like the heat. Our cars don't like the heat. AC, the motors, they nothing likes the heat. So we do things early in the morning or later in the evening. But she's here at noon, 12 p.m. Maybe it was a long day. Maybe, maybe she had some errands to run. She, you know, whatever. She lost track of time. But Jesus says, give me a drink. And verse 9 says, And the woman of Samaria said to him, <clears throat> How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And John tells us, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now the animosity here, the, the, the rivalry that Samaritans and Jews had was evident in her response. They have no dealings with Samaritans. They avoid each other at all costs. It's like you avoiding all and any dealings with a terrorist, whether foreign or domestic. You don't do business with them, right? You, your worldview is different. You have different business partners, different connections. You shop at different stores. You get the idea. And furthermore, she's a she. She says, I'm a Samaritan woman. Rabbis usually didn't strike up a conversation with women, especially without the company of their husbands. So what's your motive, dude? Why are you asking me for water? Like, I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. And Jesus answered and said to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So if you knew the gift of God, this is the only time in the Gospels that the word gift is mentioned. Uh, we see it mentioned a lot in the epistles. And it is usually mentioned in relation to the gift of salvation, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it has some overlap with the gifts that we receive to serve others in the church. And it's interesting if you notice uh, how John organizes his writing in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 16, God gives his only begotten, his unique, one-of-a-kind son. And in John chapter 4, verse 10, if you knew God's gift, he says. So what do we know about a gift, guys? You got to pay for it, right? It's free. No strings attached. If you are the giver, you should not expect anything in return. Unless you're like my mom. Growing up, she would 
pick up gifts for my uncles and aunts, and then she would kind of try to figure out the value, right, the monetary value, and she would send a gift back to them of comparable value because <laughs> that's a polite thing to do. If you are the receiver, you are not expected to give anything or promise anything. You shouldn't buy into getting a gift. The only exception in our time being the little coupons that you get from Burger King, huh? Free Whopper. And then you try to go cash them and you, got, you have to actually buy something, right? They get you like that, those people. Now at El Paso Bible Church, we purposely overstate the fact that salvation is free. No strings attached. And the gift of God here, in my opinion, is Jesus himself and the offer he is making to her, the living water. In the Old Testament, uh, living water or fountain of life was used as a metaphor for the life that God gives. For example, in Psalm 36, verse 19, for with you is a fountain of life. In Jeremiah 2, my people have committed a double wrong. They have rejected me, the fountain of life, giving water. In Jeremiah 17, those who turn away from you will be consigned to the netherworld, for they have rejected you, the Lord, the fountain of life, the water of life, or the living water. So in essence, Jesus is saying that he has the ability to give her the life that God gives, which is everlasting in essence, Jesus is turning to the woman and saying, you're the one that is thirsty. Verse 11 and 12, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and, and his livestock? Her response is similar to that of Nicodemus's, right? Very naturalistic. When Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And he says, well, how do you want me to do that? You want me to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Very naturalistic. Woman says, what are you going to use to draw water? Your boys are gone. They're in the city. They're buying supplies. You don't have the right gear. Are you greater than our father Jacob? So kind of a national pride here, right? This was virtually holy ground to Samaritans. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the three big patriarchs of the time. And it was Jacob who had been at this spot, and evidently he either dug a well or he bought a property with a well in it. Uh, so she's, pr she's pr uh, proud about that and, and asks, are you greater than him? He, he gave us this well. He drank from it himself. But she's not getting it. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now notice the contrast here. The water emanating from Jacob's well will quench your thirst, Jesus says, but not indefinitely. Now, the water that Jesus gives will satisfy you forever. You will never thirst, ever. This lady had to go through all sorts of logistics and trouble to get to the well virtually every day, as was customary. And, but she had a different type of thirst, and she didn't realize it. She was dying inside. 
And she needed this living water that would give her everlasting life. So the woman says, all right, I'll bite. Verse 15, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I don't think she gets it, right? She's still thinking in terms of actual water. But she says if there is some kind of magic trick here, some whatever you do, whatever juju you do, avoid me coming down here. Please save me the trouble. That's going to make me really happy. Whatever you have to do, just give me that water. Now, I don't want to come here anymore. That's going to make me happy. That's going to satisfy me. Let's do it. Now, there are always those who feel that if I could just have blank, uh, then I would be happy. I would, I would be satisfied. If I just had blank, then I would, be, I would live a happy life. It seems that man is always setting out a goal or a thing whereby he feels that if I could just achieve, if I could just attain, if I could just have this thing or this possession, then I would be satisfied. I wouldn't thirst anymore. And Jesus says, not so. You drink of this water and you will thirst again. Last week in our youth group, uh, we saw the life of Matthew. And when he was there at the booth collecting taxes and robbing from people, and he was a type of person that was chasing stuff. He was stacking his money, chasing possessions in order to be fulfilled. And humanity will do that. Humanity never finds satisfaction in anything. And so they keep on chasing after dreams and possessions and status. And Jesus says to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not even your husband, in that you spoke truly. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this makes me extremely uncomfortable. Had I been there to witness the conversation, I would probably just fade it into the shadows. I don't want anything to do with this conversation. Man, Jesus is digging up into this woman's past. And these verses give us some insight. It gives us the reason why she was there at 12 p.m. and not early in the morning with the others. She had a past. She had some serious baggage. She lived a life of immorality, to say the least. Five guys, not the burger joint, five husbands. And on her sixth, and that wasn't even her husband, she had a promiscuous lifestyle. So she would wait until... The last of the ladies was gone every day, and she would just hold it and hold it and check her. Do they have watches? She would just, she would just wait until every lady was gone from the, from the well. She didn't want any drama. Who blames her? Who does? And I think most women would have walked away at this point, right? You have five husbands, and the one you have now is not even your husband. Whew, heavy. But she carries on, and she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Man, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Now, you want to talk about something controversial, Jesus? Let's not talk about the guys I've slept with. Where should we worship? Settle this debate for us right now. Now, the Jews had their spot in Jerusalem. They had their temple in Jerusalem, and their, their, their ways of carrying out rituals and sacrifice to God. 
the Samaritans had their own temple, and it was in Samaria. And remember, it was syncretistic, perhaps. They had their own way of worshiping, too. <laughs> and the woman says, man, just settle this debate for us right now. Where should we worship God? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. Excuse me. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is pointing to that time where the veil would be torn, his sacrifice for the world, the passion. And he would inaugurate a different way of worshiping God. And the location of such would simply be trivial. So because, because God is spirit, we can't put him in a box, right? We can't contain him in a temple or in a building. Solomon knew this when he built his magnificent, magnificent temple. And when he's praying to dedicate it, he says, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. You can't put him in a box. You can't put God in a box. You can't limit him to a place. And in the same fashion, Jesus is saying, you can't limit worship to a place or to a style or to a time of the week or of the day. Uh, worship from now on, Jesus says, will be in spirit and truth. In spirit meaning through the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the worship proceeds from a person who has spiritual life because of the new birth. In other words, you can't worship God if you don't have the life that God gives you. You need to be born again. And she needed to be born again. She needed living water. That's in spirit. In, in truth, contrasts with the false syncretistic worship they had so if you are to worship God, you have to worship him through the enabling of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And you have to worship the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So there is this expectation of both Jews and Samaritans of a coming Messiah or Christ, which simply means the anointed one sent from God. And the lady says, I know he's coming. Uh, he's coming and he has all the answers. Uh, Samaritans only viewed the Pentateuch or the first five books of scripture as authoritative, uh, I believe to the day. And in Deuteronomy 18, 18, we read, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Now, his expectation is fulfilled in its highest and fullest sense in Jesus Christ. I know he's coming. I know this, this person, the Messiah. I know he's coming. And when he comes, he actually has the answers, Jesus well, you're speaking to him right now. I who speak to you am he. 
What I love about this story, church, a true story, is that Jesus breaks all religious and cultural protocols to extend grace to a woman with the past. It teaches me that God's grace doesn't discriminate ever. See, this Samaritan woman had a pretty heavy past, especially for that day. And she was probably going to live with that past for the rest of her life until she died. Even if she tried to move away, where to? She's a Samaritan. But Jesus tells her, your, your past doesn't determine who you are. It doesn't determine your future. Now, if you are here this morning, you have baggage. And you're either one of two people. You have baggage, but God can still save you. Now, this lady had some nasty stuff in hers. Yet God still extends the offer of salvation to her. You've probably been listening to different sermons, reading your Bible, coming to church. And you think to yourself, how how can God ever save me? I've done some nasty stuff in my past. I've said some nasty things where I've, I've thought things I shouldn't have thought. Well, you have baggage, but God can still save you like he did to this woman. If that's not you, you still have baggage, but God can still use you. So you'll join the church. Okay, I'm a saved person. I, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'll join the church. Um, but don't ask me to do anything, right, because I, I have some baggage. I have, I have a past, and I don't think God can use people like me. Don't ask me to volunteer for anything. <laughs> now, we didn't get into the rest of this story, but listen to what happens next in verse 28. The woman then left her water pots. What happened to her thirst? Went her way into the city and said to the man, to the men, forgive me, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city And came to him. And in verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city that knew the woman, the woman, they believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. Now, that doesn't get you excited. I don't know what will. But I think she trusted in Jesus sometime between her conversation with him and her going to the city. Sometime. She trusted Jesus. And she had some baggage. She had some baggage, but that was nothing. It didn't mean anything to her. She was going to tell the men, there's this guy, you got to come talk to him, you got to hear him. The, the transformation that took place was so amazing and so powerful that these men, these Samaritans, believed in Jesus because of the testimony of this woman with the past. So you have some baggage. But God can still save you. And God can still use you. This morning we remember the love of Jesus as we patiently wait for his return for us. And we want to celebrate this by remembering his sacrifice through the act of communion. And as is customary, we will have a time of prayer and then participate of the elements.
Man, would you come forward? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this time of the service when we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on that cross. And Father, he was beaten and punished uh, for no reason. He actually uh, was beaten beyond recognition. Father, we, we just uh, think of as he went on that cross that uh, he bore the sins of the world. He purchased us from the slave market of sin. And we thank you for that. And so, Father, we remember how he was broken. Traded with the breaking of bread. So, Father, he is what he's done for us and who you are. For we pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen.
we're doing the uh, small end first. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. pray. I don't know if you guys have a song. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your sacrifice, and we patiently and joyfully, we await your return. We ask that you bless uh, the rest of this week, uh, bless the efforts of every person here, and continue to bless the ministry of El Paso Bible Church. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand with this church. We'll dismiss.